Welcome to Invisible and On Stage, a podcast series hosted to you by me, Dr. Kiasha Worthy, staff psychologist at Columbia Health Counseling and Psychological Services. Please remember that although the podcast is intended to provide support, it is not a replacement for psychotherapy. If you are interested in counseling services and are a Columbia University student on Morningside campus, please contact CPS at 212-854-2878. All right, so welcome to the third episode of Invisible and On Stage. And today's topic is on imposter syndrome and the black experience. And I am joined by Drs. Dante Bernard and Dr. Tracy Lowe. Thank you for being here, guys. Thank you for inviting us. So well, thank you for having us. Really excited to be here. Dante is a second year NIMH T32. What does that mean, T32? <laughs> it means I'm on. A, I'm funded by the National Institute of Health through a training grant. Okay. Uh, so the T just stands for training. That's all. It's okay. A letter, letter. Okay. <laughs> Postdoctoral fellow at the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center at the Medical University of South Carolina. His research aims to understand the psychological and behavioral health consequences of racism-related stress, for example, racial discrimination, among Black youth and emerging adults. The predominant goal of his research is to identify how and why racism-related stress leads to poor mental health outcomes, including trauma, so as to promote resilience and positive psychosocial adjustment in the face of racism-related adversity. Dante earned his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Did I say that right? Okay. Right on. Right. So you are not a Duke fan. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna say I'm not a Duke fan, but if I have to pick Tar Heels over the Blue Devils, I'm, I'm gonna roll with Tar Heels. Okay. Okay. Tracy is the assistant director of assessment for the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on black students' experiences in higher education with a particular focus of black women graduate students. Additionally, her research interests include issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. Tracy holds a doctorate in educational leadership and policy from the University of Texas at Austin. So in 2018, our former first lady, Michelle Obama, participated in a book tour for her memoir, Becoming. While visiting a school in London, one student asked what it feels like to be a symbol of hope. And surprisingly, Mrs. Obama reported that she continues to struggle with imposter syndrome. In fact, her exact words was that it doesn't go away, that feeling that you shouldn't take me that seriously. Imposter syndrome is a term coined by psychologist Clanton Imes in the 1970s, who defined it as a feeling of not being good enough, like one does not belong that they are a fraud, and that others will find out. So usually on the podcast, uh, the first two episodes were of people that I've known through like family or friends, and I just kind of was researching imposter syndrome and ran into this article authored by Drs. Bernard and Lowe, or we kind of went over this first name basis, Dante and Tracy. <laughs> um, and you know, this was published in the, the Journal of Diverse Issues in Higher Education, and the title of their article was Imposter Syndrome, Black College Student, and How Administrators Can Help. What are your thoughts about someone as um, 
esteemed as Michelle Obama, who's married to our first black president, right, who is still struggling with imposter syndrome. Are you guys surprised at all? Nah, Tracy, I'll go first and then you can follow up. Uh, I would say not at all uh, surprised. One of the things that we know about this imposter syndrome uh, kind of experience is it's what people call like this private and internal battle that, people, that folks are struggling with. Uh, no one really talks about it. So when we hear people who are in positions of power, people who are doing very well in their craft, like even Serena Williams is talking about this, about not feeling good enough. Uh, it really catches us by surprise because we're like, how can somebody like that feel like like I am right right now? Um, and it's actually a really commonplace experience with some literature, though dated, suggesting that roughly 70 to 80 percent of the U.S. population experiences at least one time in their lifetime. Yeah, and I can appreciate the fact that you put this out to the forefront because like Dante was saying, it's not something that people talk about. Um, and again, for people who may experience it, say high school, college, this is something that is continuous throughout life. So there'll be definitely different phases of life where you may come into a situation where you're uncomfortable, you in a new position, maybe in a new space that's unfamiliar. And those feelings of imposterism, like, did they really hire me? Like, am I qualified for this? Can I do this? They come up. So in terms of her being at the level that she is um, and still facing imposter syndrome every day, I feel like that is something that is pretty common. And again, I'm glad that you really kind of brought that to the forefront of conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Dante, you mentioned that 70 to 80% of people struggle with imposter syndrome. So I'm assuming that both of you struggle with it. Do you mind sharing you know, maybe at different points in your life, how it came up for you? Yeah, um, for me, I would say it probably started, well, for me, the, the awareness of maybe feelings of imposterism, still not being able to label it until later on in life, but the awareness of feeling those types of feelings came about in high school because I was in a science and engineering magnet that was full of men, um, and I, it was, I won't say it was a predominantly white space. So that experience was more diverse, but math, science, like those STEM, particularly STEM classes and, and STEM focused still, um, I've been accepted into the high school, but I always was just like, am I really supposed to be here? Because these are brilliant people. They're like, they can get calculus in two seconds and I'm going to tutor in every day. So definitely feeling like I don't I don't really belong here in certain spaces in certain classrooms and just kind of still trudging forward. But then you get to a predominantly white institution such as Texas A&M University, and you're pretty much one of few, or I was one of few black people. And so in that particular space, I think there are some racial ethnic identity pieces that kind of factored into that imposterism um, and that feeling of, do you really belong on campus? For me, I'm a first-gen college student, right? So my families don't really understand what's happening when I tell them about what's going on, the, the different you know trials and tribulations of going to college and then to grad school and pursuing a higher degree. But I think across each one of those stages, I'm coming from a predominantly white institution, uh, UNC, now uh, MUSC, my undergrad was at Kansas State University. So here is this brown man walking into these white spaces and folks are like, what are you doing here? Like, what, what's going on? And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges was trying to understand how I got to this place where other folks have a long lineage of being 
So being in classes where I'm like, I don't know up from down and folks are like, oh, yeah, well, my dad's coming in and he's done X, Y and Z. And he's talked to this person already. He's got me linked in here. And I'm thinking, how do I how did I get here? And when is somebody going to find out that I, I just don't belong here? Uh, and I think as I've transitioned through each one of these different phases, the work that I have done has been recognized by folks, but I'm not used to that, right? So I'm still waiting for somebody to say, mm, that, that's a little off, right? That, that's not quite right. You don't belong in these spaces, in these places, right? And then within the clinical context, now you got me doing healthcare stuff. I'm like, hold on, time out, right? Like, when's when somebody <laughs> going to recognize that, I, I, that I'm not there? So I, I think... Tracy's right on, there's this intersection between space, place, and also family dynamics that all kind of come together and intersect to inform uh, these feelings that we're, that we're going through that we're talking about today. Thank you. I, I like the fact that both of you really focused on what it means to be Black and how that can exacerbate that feeling of being an imposter in these white spaces. Students at Columbia, which is a PWI, also mentioned that even from the graduate level. And so Tracy, I want to throw this over to you, your thoughts about or what are some of the things that you've heard about graduate students who experience this, particularly black graduate students? The biggest thing that I hear from black graduate students is not knowing about this thing called the hidden curriculum. So why are there other students who are getting these opportunities? And then it comes back to them on, am I not qualified enough? Like, am I really supposed to be here? Because I see all of these people getting these opportunities for research. I see them being in these spaces where they can get publications, they can get conference presentations, and even down to funding. And I feel like the conversation kind of turns on a point of NAB aid, not knowing, and a lot of them being first-generation students, but then also feeling, you know, do I really belong in this space because I am left out of this space? And people are going to find out that I'm a fraud because I'm sitting in class. It seems like everybody else knows all of these big words and this language that people are using to discuss these articles and and not knowing that some of this is not necessarily that they know, it's just that they have other mentors and other people who have helped them kind of navigate and work that system. And so again, at the graduate level, I feel like that that is a really vulnerable space for black students is they kind of they're kind of walking this fine line of when do I if there is something that's happening that I'm not invited to the space, how do I speak up? but also not threaten potentially future opportunities. Yeah, thank you. I like that hidden curriculum that many of us aren't aware of. I attended Seton Hall University, and I'm from the South, uh, you know, originally from like a really rural area, but also once I moved to another place, it was mainly like, especially my high school was predominantly Black. I went to HBCU, and so once I got to college, I felt so out of place, and I really related to what you said, Trace, is like, are these, I don't know these words, like, what are they even saying? Like, these are S-A-T-E-G-R-E words. How do I find my, you know, my voice in these spaces? And I think that was the hardest part for me was just like, how can I represent myself in the best way without feeling like a fraud and feeling undeserving of this, like, position that I'm in? Yeah, I like the way you said that. How do you find your voice? And I think that encapsulates what a lot of them are trying to figure out is how do they find their voice in these spaces, like you said, um, without feeling like a fraud. So I appreciate you explicitly kind of like saying that. I, I think one thing that I, I really resonate here with is this idea of finding your voice. Um, but I think it's even more than that, not only finding your voice, but valuing the voice that you have in these spaces. I think the inherent message that is conveyed to a lot of folks of color is that your perspective, 
your culture, your experiences are non-normative, therefore not important, right? Um, or the way that you approach these topics are cool, but that's not how we do it as a field, right? That's not what we do in here. I think it's a real important struggle of trying to find one's voice, but also the importance behind one's voice, uh, because what we bring in and the unique aspects that we're bringing in uh, hold value. And once I think those two can be merged together, the value and one's voice, I think the power behind that is pretty significant. Thanks for sharing that. I'm wondering, you know, your research interest is understanding the psychological and behavioral health, right? How does this intersect or does this intersect in any way with imposter syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. So I I, I tell folks that the best research is me search. So the research (laughs) you can personally relate to, right? So I tell folks from the jump, like, I feel like one of the biggest imposters you'll ever meet because I'm always questioning, like, is this good enough? Is this fair? Uh, but one of the things that we find is that this pattern of questioning, is this good enough? When's somebody going to find out that I don't belong? Is it actually increases feelings of anxiety, increases feelings of depression, and also this idea of interpersonal sensitivity, which is a fancy term of saying I feel more sensitive in interpersonal interactions. Like somebody's going to call me out. Somebody's going to you know, criticize me, right? Uh, we also know that these experiences come on a cost of one's self-esteem as well and also increase these uh, tendencies to feel like I need to be perfect at all times. And we know that these are all risk factors for a lot of the things that you and I see in the clinical context, right, in, in clinical work, right? So folks who are anxious about school performance or about peer interactions or about, you know, being able to perform on tests or ACTs or GREs or whatever, whatever, we find that these experiences of imposter are predictive of these things that can actually come in detriment. I'm sure you've done all the research. You know, I'm going to toot your horn, even if you're not tooting it yourself for the both of you. you. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if you noticed any gender differences in any way. Yeah, absolutely. So similar to your quote at the beginning with Michelle Obama, uh, it, it falls, uh, I wouldn't say clearly along those lines, but we do find in most of the research that females are reporting increased rates of imposter cognition relative to that of males. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons that, that could be, right? We have, you know, societal expectations and gender norms about, you know, who's qualified, quote unquote, for what, uh, like Tracy was mentioning, these STEM fields and who belongs in what places, uh, CEOs, right? Who's supposed to be in these places and who's not, uh, and other positions of power similar to what Michelle Obama had talked about. As an extra layer, we find that Black women in particular are particularly susceptible to these feelings, right? If we talk about the intersection between gender and race, one holding these two marginalized statuses, right, that come with their own unique experiences of discrimination or prejudice or what have you, um, those increase one's likelihood to have these thoughts of like, do I really belong here? Because something's not right. I agree. Um, <laughs> and me and me and Dante do a presentation of this. So my section is specifically thinking about it from that racialized and gendered lens. Um, and sometimes I talk to students about like that superwoman syndrome in terms of feeling like you have to be the superwoman that's perfect and that's everything and how, like you said, all of that adds to that anxiety, it adds to stress, it adds to depression, and it adds to all these risk factors in terms of our mental and physical health. And so for a black woman in particular spaces, um, even thinking about like intro interracial spaces, and I think I'm inter interracial spaces, um, and how how it feels to just sit in these spaces and just to be a woman in a particular space. And then you add the concept of race and gender on top of that. But I do agree 
with all of those things. Um, like I said in my examples, particularly in the STEM field, like I had other Black women who were also in the same classes as me, and we would kind of create our groups of, you know, study groups and different things like that uh, because it's where we felt safe. So I think those safe spaces are very much needed in order for us to kind of navigate these feelings of imposterism in terms of mentors and just people who can support us and help us to kind of work through those feelings. I'm wondering how it could be reinforced, like this idea of being imposter, not only in the workplace, but also in society. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of, that's one of the core pieces of my research that I really look at is this idea of how experiences with discrimination intensify these feelings that we're talking about here. Uh, and I think one of the things you're alluding to is how do the things happen happening around us, right, in our society reinforce these feelings, make them worse, right? Uh, and the list goes on and on how this occurs, right? We see the messages in the media regarding the intellect or the capacities of Black folks. We see it in now political realms or political domains and talking about folks talking about how, quote unquote, not smart folks of color are, disparately position us within positions that, you know, are not as doctors or not as scientists or not as whatever, whatever. So when our success goes beyond those realms or kind of exceeds what folks have kind of put us in that box for, I think that's when we start to feel in our feelings like, uh, I'm not, like, I'm actually disproving a lot of the stereotypes that folks had for me, right? Or I'm actually doing things that go against societal perceptions of what Black folks should be doing. What about in the workplace? How can work reinforce or just our, the systems reinforce this feeling of being an imposter? I was, and I forget which one of you talked about the CEOs, but I think we just got our first Black woman CEO of like a Fortune 500 company. I believe we just got one. Um, so all these years, you know, not seeing representation. And I think in the workplace, that representation piece in terms of, and I'll, I'll use higher education and just, just these are just my observations. There's no research behind this uh, in particularly. I'm, I'm thinking of observations. But in terms of observations of like who stays staff mid-managed level, who who's represented there, and then when we get hired to say the vice president and the president of colleges and universities, what does that representation look like? So I think that in the workplace it can be reinforced through just the lack of representation. So feeling like, well, maybe I'm not good enough for these spaces because I don't see people like me. And then when I do get into this space, there's this kind of this level of either microaggressions or just other kinds of little things that are done to kind of just reinforce the fact that you're, you don't belong. So you, you, you're supposed to be the secretary. And then if you're not secretary, if you're my boss, then do I really have to respect you? I think you hit it spot on with just kind of the representation. When we don't see us, how can we feel confident in our own abilities, right? If we don't see other people who look like us. But I was reading something and one of the things that I saw was just kind of looking at the imposter syndrome, even outside of performance. It was kind of alluding to the fact that people can also feel like a, an imposter in their race and their sexual orientation and things like that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot here is imposter within predominantly white spaces, but we don't talk about it in much within historically black context, right? What that looks like. Uh, and that's actually some of the things that my dissertation focused on is like the differences in how folks talk about imposter within predominantly white spaces and historically black colleges or spaces like that. 
And what we find, kind of alluding to what Tracy was talking about, was within historically black spaces, folks aren't talking about race as much as feeling as an imposter, but more so just, not, I'm sorry, not racial mistreatment, right? But like, am I black enough? Uh, am I quote unquote woke enough for these spaces, right? Uh, what does it look like to be black? What does it mean to be black? And how does my level map on to the folks around me? And then outside of that, how does my success then map onto the folks around me, right? Am I doing as well as my black peers? And if not, why? Why don't I have the connections that they do? Why am I not in these groups or places? So we find within these black spaces that folks are talking about this experience for different reasons than that of when they're in white spaces, which is a really interesting question to think about. No, I totally agree. I, you know, I'm always kind of, as you said, like the, the best type of research is me search. And so as you were, as both of you speak, I can't help but think about myself and think about just kind of what you were describing. I know for me, you know, most of my peers from back home don't have the high, the highest level of education that I do. And I always just like, do I seem cool enough? Do I, you know, am I too, am I acting like I'm in college? Am I using the right language? Definitely those discussions of who's black enough. Um, social media, I heard conversations about this all the time in terms of who's too black, who's black enough, who's not representing us. Am I, do I fit in? Am I hip enough? Am I cool enough? Yeah, and I know for me, you know, whenever I go back home, I do find I, I struggle, right, in terms of what topics can I talk about here? that my family finds interesting, right? I remember when I defended my, my master's, my family was like, congrats on being done with grad school. You defended your dissertation. And I was like, nah, I'm not done. I actually have like several more years to go. And like, they, they just don't know that, that. And it's not on them, right? Why would they know? Um, so I I've absolutely find myself struggling with this question of what, like, did I lose it? Whatever that quote, quote unquote, it is, right? Which is a really interesting thing to think about. Um, as I really think about this idea of, of code switching, um, you know, do I, when I go back home, do I find myself trying to change my language a bit to fit what my family's language, right? Such that I'm able to connect more, seem like I'm whatever that, whatever that means, right? And then when I jump back into more academic spaces, then I start throwing out these fancier big words again. So I found that over the course of my career, I've had, you know, a, a personal identity and a professional identity, but as I've grown older, those two have actually become you know, one and the same, where I'm not trying to do that as much. But I think as you start to get more educated, if you will, uh, within academia specifically, you do start to see yourself almost turning into these two different people. So you have to be really intentional, at least I have to be really intentional about trying to bring those back together so that I'm not trying to live these two separate lives, if you will. And I'm curious, how did you bring those two parts of yourself together? Yeah, I found one when I couldn't keep them separate anymore, right? Meaning that when issues of race started to, to bleed into the work that I was doing, I found like I was talking about me, right? I wasn't talking about, you know, just this foreign concept of imposter. Like, and I'm talking about my experiences and the experiences of folks who look like me, right? We are dealing with this. Therefore, it's important that we talk about this at the forefront, right? When we had, you know, the death of Mike Brown and Walter Scott, I can go down and down and down the list, right? Like, we can't not talk about these things within these spaces, which is why my research has evolved to look at, you know, this idea of racial trauma. Like, we, we can't not think about these traumatic events or these experiences without acknowledging the lived experiences of Black and Brown folks in this country. So I think at one point in time, I tried to keep those things disconnected. Like, ah, we don't want to talk about this that much. 
But the more I did this stuff, I'm realizing like we, we can't not talk about this stuff, right? If we want to support students, especially students of color, we have to validate their experiences, our experiences. Exactly. You both just kind of mentioned, you know, being connected to the community. Like, how can you still remain connected? And uh, Dante, you spoke a little bit about just kind of bringing those two parts of yourself together. And Tracy, I'm wondering, how do you manage to stay connected to the Black community? Um, I'm lucky that my job requires it, requires it. And because I love community work so much, I typically look for or try to be very intentional. In, in, and not everyone can do this, but the spaces that I put myself in in terms of career, are they equity focused? Will they be looking at issues related to black people? And so the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, we do policy work specifically just around black communities in Texas. So I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to just remain connected through all of the work that I'm doing in Texas that specifically focuses on black communities. And even outside of work, just thinking about the spaces in the community that I work with, thinking about the ways that I can reach back and mentor other Black graduate students who are, like, going through the, the process of dissertating and, like, all the unknowns and all of those things. Even just in my own family, I have a lot of people who are, are coming up and trying to figure out undergrad and graduate school and things like that. So I think that there are ways that even if you can't necessarily in your career do those things that you would like to do to stay connected, that those outside organizations and spaces that you frequent, such as space-based spaces, um, volunteer spaces, those are the ways that um, people can keep connected and that I keep connected and to kind of keep myself grounded because without that, I just, I feel like it would, life, would, life wouldn't be the same. And so again, being very intentional to bring my full self um, into spaces, even if they are predominantly white spaces, because if I don't, then like the value of your voice, understanding the value of the voice. So I would say understanding the value of my voice in all of these spaces this way. So I try to stay connected everywhere. Thank you. How do you know if you really are an imposter? You know, this is an interesting question because I think about what does it mean to be an imposter, right? Does it mean you don't belong in a space? Does it mean that you have cheated on everybody else's exam and that's how you got in these spaces or places, right? Like how do we define this, this feeling? Uh, and, and to be real, like, I, I think we are all feeling this way in some way, shape, or form, regardless if folks want to talk about it or not, right? Uh, but I think what's important about this idea of imposter syndrome is to recognize that it's a normal experience, right? Like, it's, it's okay to feel this way. It doesn't mean that you are an imposter. It just means that, like, you're a little uncomfortable in these spaces, but give it some time right? And the next time you have something new, you'll probably feel this thing all over again. And one of the things that we find that reduces imposter experiences is time, social support, right? And having folks that have been through this to kind of normalize that experience and also to equip you with the skills needed to, to go through this and re recognize that, okay, hear that voice is again. That doesn't mean it's real. It just means I feel a little uncomfortable. Now let's find out why. I was thinking about this and I think that's kind of determined on an individual personal basis of if you were really an imposter because some people may be in a dance space where they're just like I got this and some people are like I got two of feet why did they pick me for dance class so a lot I agree with everything Dante has said um, I think everybody has these feelings sometimes I think it's just an awareness of what this language and this term exists um, and that's probably there's probably a moment when people realize somebody's talking about this that is me 
I would feel like that's when people can really start to interrogate whether they're in a, they feel it's like they're an imposter. Um, but I do think that people have these feelings um, that they feel in terms of if they belong, if they're confident enough, if they're smart enough. Um, I think everybody kind of shares them. And again, like Dante said, time. I also want to make sure that I reiterate something that Tracy said at the beginning. It doesn't go away, right? It's not going to be completely zero. You can talk to folks who are super experienced in their field. You can talk to Michelle Obama, and she's still like, yeah, yeah, I feel this way, right? So it's not that the uh, the feeling itself goes away, but I think the intensity of it goes away and the attribution of why you're feeling that way changes. Like, I don't feel this way because I'm a fraud. I feel this way because I know how, black, how people think about Black folks. So acknowledging the feeling, knowing that it's going to be there, right? And also validating this emotional experience while being curious of why it's there. Flash from the past. This is a segment of the podcast where the listeners can learn more about you outside of your profession. I would like for you to embrace your younger college self and think about your preferences at that time. When you were in college, did you prefer exams or essays? Ooh, I'm going to say essays. Yeah, I'm going to go with essays as well on this one. All right. Individual or group projects? I started off as a group project person, but... I've now changed to an individual project person. I just I can just get it done myself as opposed to waiting on somebody. Oh, uh, back in the day, I used to like those group projects. And then once people stopped pulling their weight, that's when I was just like, I don't appreciate this anymore. Y'all ain't doing nothing. Did you go out on Fridays ni- Friday nights or stay in? Uh, kind of both. Because uh, they had these things on campus that they did. So if you, if you ask me if I went off campus very much, probably not. I can probably count on my hand the number of times I went out on Friday night back in the day. It was not a lot. Ashanti's Foolish on that Biggie beat or Beyonce's Crazy in Love. I got to go with Beyonce there. The beat on the Beyonce on, the, on that track just gets me every time. Yeah, and especially the one that opens our Homecoming album. It's just like, okay, we're getting ready to do something. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or Family Matters? I'm watching Fresh Prince right now. So all over on HBO, shout out. Like, so I got to go back with Fresh Prince. But that's that's it. I'm going to say Fresh Prince too. I like Family Matters, but I watch Fresh Prince more now. Now I want you to think about what you would tell your college self. I'm going to start a sentence and I want you to finish. Always keep a planner. Always keep your priorities straight. And the last one, be open to uncertainty. Being uncomfortable. At the end of each podcast, I offer some skills and tips to students, but you guys are the experts here. So I'm just going to sit back and listen to, you know, if you have two or three strategies that you think could be helpful, if even if it pertains to like if the person themselves are dealing with imposter syndrome or even how to support people from an institutional level, which I know that's one thing that I read about what you guys wrote in your article. Or how do you support a friend or a colleague with imposter syndrome? All right, I'll go first. So uh, I won't take the institutional stuff. I'll let Tracy take that because I know that, you know, that's that's your jam. Uh, at the personal level, I, I'll say a couple of things. So first, coming from a therapy lens, at the end of the day, imposter represent a form, uh, represents a form of uh, cognitive distortion, right, or a distorted way of thinking about yourself, your abilities, right, uh, or what you're able to produce, whether that be a function as from what other folks have told you or the internalization of other messages. So it's really important that we keep track of what thoughts we're telling ourselves when we feel uncomfortable 
when we feel like we're in these situations where we can't succeed? And how can we interrogate those thoughts to really identify how truthful they are? Because I think once we start to understand, I'm never going to be successful. Like, well, is that true? How many times have you actually never been successful in the past, right? Or somebody's going to find out that I'm a failure. And if you think you're going to fail, tell me about how your past success predicts your future failure. Like, that doesn't make, that, that doesn't, that doesn't equate. We, we also talk about the imposter syndrome. We usually qualify this by saying it's experienced by high achieving individuals, right? I don't like that phrase of high achieving because it suggests that some folks can experience it while others don't. If you got into college, if you got a job, if you're, you know, if you're doing these things, you are high achieving in itself, right? So by proxy of you feeling this thing, you are important. You belong in your experiences, right? Are, uh, are not that of some, like, you're not going to get called out because you don't belong here um, because of the, like, the things that you're doing. Lastly, I'll say that it's important to recognize that you aren't alone in this experience, right? Um, this is not something where you're walking around having a thought like, am I crazy? Like, does, does somebody feel like I don't belong? Now, I think it's important to note that folks might tell you you don't belong, but that's not because of what you're doing. That might be because of their own biases or preconceived notions about what you look like or the, like the, you know, the topics that you're talking through. So I think it's really important to have spaces and places that you can be open, transparent, and authentic about what you are thinking about, what you're struggling with, and what you are going through. Because when you can have folks normalize those thoughts or challenge those thoughts or even hold you accountable to really interrogating those thoughts, uh, I think we see completely different trajectories of success, outcomes, and adjustment. I would say from thinking about it from like a personal and institutional level. So personally, I think self-affirmation, um, and again, like Dante was talking about having these conversations with yourself and really interrogating feelings that are coming up for you. Institutions creating spaces, creating representation for people to, A, want to access these spaces and not feel as if they're not able to take the challenges that they have and be able to speak to someone who they can relate to. So for me, I think feeling, dealing with imposterism at an institutional level means changing some things within these counseling spaces. Also, bringing these conversations through the pipeline, so starting with your elementary, middle, high school, and making sure that there are always spaces for kids and students to talk about what imposterism looks like, specifically for Black students who are dealing with these extra intersectional identities that are definitely going to create extra pressures to be perfect, to to not feed into the stereotype, kind of um, just to not be what other people see them as. So these conversations should always be happening, whether it be through mentors, whether it be through programs. Like that's a part of the normalization that Dante was talking about. So institutions having to take accountability for the fact that it exists, and then bring it to the forefront for students, because I think it does it does affect like the outcomes, the academic outcomes of a lot of students. And so again, institutions, all of this takes funding. So just making sure that we're prioritizing funding the right spaces that can help students be successful and they can help have these conversations. As a, as a psychologist, right, I always got to advocate for, you know, mental health care and mental wellness. Uh, but I think one of the things you were alluding to, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is representation in these spaces where we're doing things to, to recognize the experiences of folks of color. So, Yeah, and I was just encouraging students to get counseling, but representation is important. So I'm always a big proponent of getting more people like you, Dr. Bernard, and Dr. Worthy in those spaces. Thank you.
thank you so much guys i really appreciate you both for joining me and linkedin is real you guys this is how i found these both of these beautiful people reached out to both of them on linkedin and thank you so much for responding and being a part of this thank you so much for having me thank you thank you so much for offering up your time and spending it with me if you are a columbia university student on morningside campus and today's episode left you feeling like you could benefit from talking more about this topic with an expert, please do not hesitate to call CPS at 212-854-2878.